Hi, I'm Susan Elrington, along with Caitlin Vernon, and this is the first episode of our second season of Mission Transition, Clean Energy and Beyond. This season, we're going to move beyond talking about solar panels and electric vehicles to explore some of the systemic shifts that this transition to clean energy could bring, both the challenges and the opportunities. Mission Transition is a podcast miniseries produced by Sierra Club BC and recorded in Victoria on Lekwungen Territory. Caitlin Vernon is Campaigns Director with Sierra Club BC and my co-host of the series. Hi, Caitlin. Hi, Sue. It's great to be back. It is, even with a funny wobbly voice. (laughs) These are interesting times we're living in uh, with so much changing in the world. Uh, So we're we're doing this podcast because we're at a turning point in society, a point of deciding really what future do we want next. So that's right, Caitlin. And in our first season of Mission Transition, we introduced our listeners to the transition that is already underway and some of the changes it's bringing in housing, transportation, the workforce, even agriculture. We showed you what possibilities lie in this transition. Well, this season, we're going to be posing some bigger questions, questions for which we admit there are no easy answers. Yeah, and these questions include things like how we look at our relationship with the land, who controls our energy and where it comes from, uh, what we can learn from Indigenous knowledge, how communities can make the transition to clean energy, how we need a Green New Deal for Canada. And we're going to be hearing the story from Haida Gwaii, where the communities are transitioning to renewable energy in a way that's informed by Haida laws and ways of knowing. And we're going to hear from other Indigenous leaders and journalists, climate activists, union members, every single one of them provocative thinkers. First, though, we want to start this series by talking with those who have the most at stake, the kids. Yeah, it's all about the kids this year. We've seen a young Swedish teenager named Greta Thunberg inspire millions of youth worldwide to go on strike from school to send a strong message about climate change. The kids have been taken to the streets to tell politicians to get serious about climate action. They really have. There was one day in March that over 1.4 million students joined climate strikes around the world in something like 123 countries. So the momentum really is amazing to see. And we've heard from so many of those young people about why they're out on the streets, how they feel today about the climate crisis. And so often they say they feel terrified and that they feel angry and determined as well. And it's important to acknowledge those feelings. I also think it's important to hear about how these young people envision their futures. You know, Caitlin, for many of our listeners, when we were in our teens and 20s, if we thought about the future at all, it was likely to include maybe exploring the world, falling in love, pursuing some kind of career, and uh, maybe building a family. But it's harder to think about those things when you're preoccupied with the urgency and the threats of climate change. It is. So despite battle some laryngitis, I recently sat down with three young people at a park overlooking the Salish Sea to talk about the future. Nafin Kreischer is a 15-year-old Sierra Club BC volunteer who's deeply committed to environmental advocacy. Antonia Paquin is a student at the University of Victoria in the Environmental Program. She's an activist in the environmental movement in Victoria and is a lead organizer in the youth climate movement. And Hannah Gelderman is currently doing a Master of Education in Leadership Studies at the University of Victoria. Hannah is also a climate justice organizer with the volunteer-run group Rise and Resist. And we started the conversation talking about what makes them so passionate about climate activism. I'm passionate about climate change because it's the most important thing 
that we could be spending our time and energy on right now. It's absolutely dire. It's a really serious situation and it requires everybody. We can't just leave it to the environmentalists. And Hannah, I'm going to ask you the same question. Um, I am passionate about climate change through other people's stories and experiences. Like uh, just hearing so many stories from different people, from indigenous people here in Canada or stories internationally about how people are impacted and often in such heartbreaking ways and in ways that are because of the choices that we often make or support through our society here in so-called Canada. And so, yeah, it's hard. I can't just stand by um, as these things keep unfolding. I'm passionate about climate change because not only am I young, so I'm going to feel the full impacts of this, but obviously I want a future for all the people that come after us, but there's just, in climate change happening, there's so much of an opportunity to change the way our society works, and it's an opportunity worth taking. So I'm passionate about that. If you had to use just one word to describe your emotions around the future, what, what, what would you say you feel when you think about the future, Hannah? That's a big question. And I think in one word, maybe I would say it's kind of overwhelming. Antonia? It's riveting. <laughs> because uh, I think what, what we'll see will, will be really enormous. It'll transcend uh, just policy changes and technological solutions but I think it'll it'll change the way that we relate to the world it'll change the way that we relate to the natural world and uh, each other and society in a really beautiful way as well as you know it's not something that we need to fear so I think it's riveting (laughs) riveting what about you Finn a lot of people think you're scared of the future are you I would say so yeah I would also say if if I had to choose another word, it would be, I don't want to say hopeful, but ambitious. Because it's, it's definitely tricky to reshape humanity as we know it. But it's something that I think would be a great thing to do. And a lot of, a lot of fun, so. <laughs> well, let's start talking about how that reshaping might look. Um, Let's, we're going to talk about what you think your futures hold. So let's talk about work and career. The first question I wanted to ask you is what role do you think work is actually going to play in your life? Well, I've had the privilege of having so far a lot of work that I really enjoy. And so I hope that that can continue. And so to have meaningful occupation um, and for, yeah, for myself in, in a way that's can help me survive in whatever the economic system looks like, which is hopefully different. Um, yeah, and I would hope that for other people, that people can engage in in work in a meaningful and fulfilling way and not in a way that's um, just in order to survive or not in ways that they are exploited or discriminated against. And so, yeah. And, and Finn, what kind of work do you think is going to be available to you guys in the future? Well, First of all, I do want to second what Hannah said, that, yeah, work in the future is going to be more more fair and meaningful. I feel like work in the future, obviously, is going to be very different thanks to technology and automation. So that's going to replace a lot of jobs and create a lot of new ones. But what kind of society we end up having and what we see ourselves necessary to do is going to also affect the kind of work that we're going to have. So Antonio, what do you think work will look like when you hear Finn say something like that? 
Yeah, I really like what you both said about um, different approaches to work in terms of you're not just working in order to survive, you know, car payments and mortgages and this sort of thing. Um, but uh, like you say, Finn, automation, I think, will change a lot of what work looks like. And... Um, we might find a different kind of meaning in the work that we're doing because I think there will be a lot of jobs in um, fields that previously haven't really been recognized as like a paid career sort of thing. So I see social services as being quite a big uh, part of our of our economies. So, for example, uh, um, looking after the elderly and I'm not sure, uh, different kinds of uh, different kinds of jobs in social services that require human to human connection. Uh, and and this is really beautiful because it connects us with each other in a really meaningful way and it's not like you're playing some small role as part of an enormous industry where you're disconnected from the source and end product of what you're working on whereas you actually work in a, like a, clo a small closed circuit system and I see micro economies uh, much more than like some sort of globalized economy so you're much more in touch with your local community. Uh, yeah, exactly what Antonia is saying and kind of touching what I said earlier is like, yeah, the expansion of care work and expansion of like arts sectors and other sectors that are underfunded, but where there can be such a proliferation of jobs in those fields. And then getting also into like transition work and green jobs and, and expanding what we consider as a green job. But uh, I like what you say, Hannah, about um, art being part of that, because the understanding is that in today's society you can never be an artist that's not a career but I think that'll look really different um, because uh, what if what if being a musician and what if being an artist was something that was recognized as an extremely important role within a society which it is and if you take the original New Deal in the United States uh, loads and loads of artists and musicians and painters and designers were commissioned to be part of that New Deal and so with all of this talk about a Green New Deal. I think we need artists more than ever. Let's move, shift a little bit to envisioning where you guys think you're going to live. What what will your community look like? I'll start again with with Finn here. The cities that we live in are going to be something a lot more sustainable, much more community oriented, where there's lots there's better connection to nature and simpler transportation. Yeah, hopefully everything will be close enough that it's easy to walk to get groceries, walk to work, school, or like easily commute through free and electrified public transit or by bike on like good cycling infrastructure. And so that things are close and that, yeah, really community-based and that there might be many, many, many hubs of these communities in a city or in a region and then um, yeah really building up from there the communities and the networks and and like local food production within that and so everything can be close and accessible. And let's talk about the food production a little bit. What does that look like in an urban center? There's enormous opportunity for urban agriculture. There's all kinds of really interesting initiatives like aquaponics. It's possible to grow all kinds of food indoors. And here we're really lucky on the coast because we have great weather for growing food year-round. Um, all kinds of vertical agriculture. Everybody could have their own little farm in their backyard. And I really like what you're saying, Hannah, about these little hubs. The way I imagine it is if we had a network of little villages within the city, and you lived within that village and you worked and all of your food pretty much came from your local little village within the city and 
little forests ring all of these villages so that you have access to forest and you have free electrified public transport that connects all of these little hubs. So you actually have a full-on community and car culture becomes irrelevant. All of your food is grown from down the street and serves, services all the restaurants. Everything makes sense. Presumably, going back to the other question, is the kind of world you're describing has certain jobs associated with it, too, that we might not see in a, in a community now. Hannah, I see you're nodding. Yeah, I'm kind of thinking of the agriculture in that, like, right now we see um, in, in many places, like, a shift from rural to urban um, in terms of, like, farm workers and stuff. And so that if all, people who are losing or have lost their jobs in agriculture but can regain those and expand those and we can increase the number of people engaged in that work with the earth and work um, to grow food and provide food and that that can be not one mega farm or monocrop it's like many people doing that work one more comment uh, we could have um, like a vertical a vertical gardens within some skyscraper like if one of the tall buildings in Victoria turned into an urban farm that could serve almost the entire city I do want to second that yeah agri- urban agriculture could become very efficient and a lot of people are now designing containers that just have racks and racks of plants that are lit up with these UV lights to make them grow faster and solutions like these simple scalable plants grown indoors could be a big big part of our food network. And not only is it better for us to be eating this hyper-local food but it also reshifts our relationship and understanding of where food comes from because it's pretty horrifying. You might ask a child, where, where do oranges come from? Oh, they come from the store. <laughs> what a world that is, you know, and you're not sure of where this food comes from. Well, imagine that we were growing all of the food ourselves. We would gain a whole new appreciation for food. Well, and that kind of leads us into talking a little bit about transportation, because what you're imagining means that we wouldn't have an awful lot of those great big um, trucks on the roads hauling food around from from down south up north as it were um, what else do you envision about transportation how do you think we'll be getting around both within your communities and between your your communities who wants to go first on this Finn of course I all, I really love Antonia's vision of little village hubs all connected to each other by like within a short distance but with plenty of forested and wild land basically in between them and I grew up in James Bay and I had the luxury of being a five minute walk away from the grocery store and the barber shop and a bunch of other places and I just want to see that again where our cities are dense enough that we don't really have to worry about how we get around because every solution every system is good enough that things are a quick walk away you can cycle everywhere because there's very little motorized traffic and the transit is also widespread and paid for through the system and high-speed rail and much more yeah rail between cities across the country and across the continent wow so hearing from these youth really makes me think about how the energy transition that we're facing it doesn't have to be all about sacrifice it can be really joyful and there could be all kinds of positive changes for our lives they really have put a lot of thought into the future they want. We 
yeah, they have, Caitlin, and they're equally thoughtful about what they want the people in their lives now to be doing about it. So we're going to take a short break, but you'll hear more about that from Finn, Antonia, and Hannah when we come back here on Mission Transition, Clean Energy and Beyond. Hi, my name is Christine LeClaire. I'm a board member with the Sierra Club of BC, and I am a student of climate science. I really appreciate that Sierra Club BC does not shy away from difficult issues. There are many campaigns that are challenging to not only work on, but to commit to as an organization. And I think Sierra Club is rather fearless in that regard. There are so many ways to get involved in the work of Sierra Club BC, whether it be as a donor, as a campaign volunteer. So please join us. We're back here on Mission Transition, Clean Energy and Beyond. I'm Susan Elrington, along with Caitlin Vernon, and we're in the middle of a conversation with three young people about their vision of the future. Finn Kreischer, Antonia Paquin, and Hannah Gelderman are all students and climate activists who have been organizing youth climate strikes in Victoria. They've already addressed their expectations of transportation and work and told us what their communities will look like. And as we go back to that park overlooking the Salish Sea, we're now talking about values. I think it's fair to say in the last 20 or 30 years, we've got to the point where our values might be described as very consumeristic. And, and you know, society might say that success was the accumulation of wealth. What do you think the values of a society 20 years from now might reflect. You're absolutely right. Uh, what What is success and what is value? Well, well, success is when you have a big house all to yourself or to your family and all of your appliances, you own all of them and, and it's all quite hyper-individualized as well. I'd like to really highlight that. Um, and I think that the future will be much more about community. Uh, humans need community to survive. We've always had to depend on each other and work with each other in order to survive. Um, and we'll appreciate that quite a lot more. And I think that in terms of value systems, we'll, we, we, we have to regain our deep reverence and understanding of our place within the natural world. We cannot any long we cannot any longer hold ourselves as separate from the natural world yeah I just want to I think it's important to distinguish how you were saying like the values of society and so the dominant narrative right now is absolutely what you, you were saying too about consumerism and stuff but then also these like sub narratives that you're speaking about Antonio Antonia that we want for the future they already exist and that they need to grow um, yeah because they're happening here and all around us but those yeah those can grow to become the dominant narrative that we live by and i think that yeah as a result of living closer together we're go- and probably being more dependent on helping each other out is that we're going to build that sense of community and value human connection more than material aspirations and in the netherlands actually their their culture seems to say that happiness is key to success rather than success being key to happiness. And personally, I don't even care about success, but an interesting fact is the richest 10% of the the world's population are responsible for 49% of consumption emissions. So if we can just change that consumer consumer culture, then we can do a lot. And a big part of this transition will be looking to the indigenous peoples 
We are blessed that in this part of the world there is some work towards rebuilding some relationships between the settler people, the immigrants, like we've come here from Europe to this land um, 200 years ago here in so-called British Columbia as we, as we now call it. And, um, and what we can do is keep rebuilding these relationships, uh, real relationships, and learn from them. There's so much we can learn about how to take care of the land that we have built this cities on and like what plants do grow well in wetlands and like what plants do grow well in the clay in the clay soil and like what does it mean to actually have a relationship with the land like what do they mean when they say this I think that this is a big part of what this transition can look like for us and like you say Hannah all of these ways of knowing exist already and so it's just a matter of humbling ourselves and listening, really listening. Well, I want to move a little bit to this then. We're going to talk about politicians in a minute because obviously they can make big change when they want to. But what do you want your your parents, your teachers, your neighbors, employers, friends, what do you want them to start doing right now to help make this vision of a world that you've described become a reality? I think a popular saying is everybody wants change. And we've seen that these days, that everyone wants change, but not everyone is willing to change. But in order to realize this better society, we all have to change ourselves. And so in my family, we're, we're all pretty pretty knowledgeable. And I think we ate beef twice in the last six months. And other meats we don't eat very often either. So that's one thing that we've been doing that's been making a drastic impact on our carbon footprint and I cycle to school every day and my dad actually has been cycling to work for most of my life. I want to turn to Hannah because Hannah you come from Alberta where arguably people think that's where the most change has to happen. What would you like to see folks there start to do? Yeah and so in addition to all like the kind of the individual changes that we can make in our own lifestyles is so much about organizing um, and getting involved and becoming a part of a movement or joining or starting groups that are active in pushing for the change and whether that's like just spreading the word in the conversation, raising the profile of these issues, lobbying or like putting pressure on politicians. Um, yeah, and I think, well, in Alberta, especially it's what we're talking about in terms of a vision and a future is so so important because I think it's it's hard to change when what's being what like politicians in Alberta are just telling us the same old story same old story and they're not putting forward another vision and so if people don't have anything else to look towards then what like what are their options and so yeah putting forward that vision and and laying a path for workers and for people and for communities on how to get there is so important i would also say that it's about um trying to trying to work through the seemingly quite scary reality of our situation uh it is it is quite overwhelming feeling like where to begin where to even start to get informed about what's actually going on what is actually going on and all of this change that people talk about seems so scary and i don't know what it looks like and all this but like you say hannah so much of it is about organizing and getting involved in the movement and getting informed and taking time to like really sit with this information and let it pass 
through you. And a lot of what is required from the people is a commitment, is a vow. Like I vow that I will take the time to really question what are my beliefs, what are my values, how do I see my day-to-day -day life in relation to what is required. I'm going to move now a little bit with you, Hannah, particularly to talking about the Green New Deal. What is it that you guys find exciting about the Green New Deal? I think one of the, the most exciting things about the Green New Deal is that it, yeah, it's a plan to address the climate crisis, but also to address social, economic, other environmental crisis that, so that we're collectively facing all of these interconnected crises and so that we can tackle them all together. So it's huge, but it's also so exciting that it has the potential to do that. Now, there's a federal election coming up this fall in October. What do you want to hear from the candidates who are running for office? Well, basically, I'm looking for parties and candidates to support a Canadian Green New Deal. And that's what's being put forward. There's the Green New Deal Canada, and that's the, the official name of the movement. And there's no official plan yet. It's not the same Green New Deal as what's happening in the United States. And some people say it will cost a lot of money. But if we ended our fossil fuel subsidies, we would get... M enough money annually to pay off the Green New Deal within a few years. Also concerning the Green New Deal and this upcoming federal election, it is so important that we highlight the fact that it's about uh, a just transition. So what does that mean, a just transition? Well, it means that we are collectively going to be transitioning in our society, but with a focus on marginalized communities and communities that uh, that are dealing with poverty and inequities. We absolutely need a Green New Deal in Canada because it highlights the fact that we can transition to more sustainable economies while at the same time lifting up communities that are in poverty. And so one thing I would like our politicians to do is to be on the ground really trying to understand the fullness of the situation, particularly with the Indigenous peoples of the land. Anna, what would it tell you about a candidate if they refuse to endorse the Green New Deal? Well, kind of coming out of the Our Time movement, a lot of this is looking at um, the youth who are saying that this is our time. It's our time for a Green New Deal. It's our time for a tr uh, just transition. Um, and these politicians and executives have had their time. And so it's really kind of like they're not with us. They're not supporting the youth. They're not supporting the communities. They're not, they're not looking to a just and habitable future. They're taking that away from people. And so... Fair to say those aren't the people who would inspire you, so I'm going to ask you quickly to tell me, who does inspire you? Yeah, so many people inspire me, the people that I'm working alongside every day in this movement and the people across the nation and around the world and Indigenous communities on the front line um, who are uh, experiencing the front, like the most severe impacts and who are also on the front line uh, push, of pushing for solutions. Um, yeah, the, the world is full of people who are working so hard uh, for this transition to become a reality, so I'm inspired by all of them. I'm inspired by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She's phenomenal, and she was one of the ones spearheading the Green New Deal after she got on board with the Sunrise Movement in the U.S., and I'm also inspired by our beloved Greta Thunberg, Swedish girl, 16 years old, started this youth strike movement. And that really has the potential to change quite a lot. Millions of young people around the world stepping into these new positions of leadership. I'm going to get into public speaking and I'm going to stand up for what I believe in. It's pretty cool.
First of all, I'd like to say I'm not inspired by politicians who promise to do environmental things and to do socially just things. I'm inspired by those who actually act on those things and make them happen. But I am also very inspired by youth who are leading the charge on this. I'm very involved in the climate strikes as a teenager myself, and I'm inspired by everyone that comes out and supports us. Sometimes people are just skipping school, sometimes people are going there just because it will be fun. But they're getting informed, and they're getting involved, and we're going to get stronger so that we can make that happen ourselves. I also like this youth movement a lot because typically young people have always been part of big social changes. If you look at the suffragettes or the civil rights movements, it's always been young people. I think because we are ready to get on board with new ideas. We're not so afraid of change. No offense to the older folks out there. We love you too. However, it's really great to be standing up with, with millions of young people around the world. And I'm just going to ask you in like 10 words or less, um, where do you find hope now? I would say it's similar to the people that I'm inspired by. I find hope in all of the those people and in the people that I work alongside with and in, in the social movements that are growing. That's, for me, the most hopeful thing. I find hope in the fact that it's not hopeless. <laughs> Basically it. I find hope in action. Well, I find hope in those three. They're so inspiring. Aren't they? It was a wonderful conversation. These youth really are not just the leaders of tomorrow. Youth are the leaders of today. And yet, you know, when I go to the climate strikes and I see all of the kids who are speaking up and how young so many of them are, I'm I'm so inspired by their leadership. But also, you know, really, they shouldn't have to be taking on so much. The only reason that youth today are taking to the streets with the climate strikes is because the older generation have failed them. And it's the, it's like the kids are telling the adults that our house is on fire, and it's beyond time to start acting like responsible adults. Yeah, and the way I see it, these young people are making it clear that this transition to clean energy that we talk about, it's not optional if they're going to have any kind of future at all. And for all of us with children in our lives, anything else is unimaginable. That's so true. The transition is here, Caitlin. And through this series in season two here of Mission Transition, Clean Energy and Beyond, we're going to hear from people who are looking at some bigger questions around the transition. Mm-hmm. As our panelists talked about, there are opportunities as we transition away from fossil fuels to, to find ways of shifting how connected or isolated we are from each other and from the land, and to address things like justice for Indigenous peoples and for workers as we take action on climate change. Or we could go through this transition and perpetuate inequalities. So we definitely are at a turning point. And in this podcast, we're going to talk to people who provoke us to think about where energy comes from, who should decide that, who should decide who gets to access it, and how should we use our land to be producing energy. Yeah, we're going to talk to people who are looking at how changes to the way we think about things could mean real, really significant changes. For example, you know, changes to the way we think about transportation could be as significant as the disruption of the smartphone. Mm-hmm. You know, and we'll examine who's paying for this transition. Or who should be paying for it. <laughs> yeah, and who is bearing the burden. And of course, you'll hear more about the Green New Deal, which, as our young panelists said, it's the entrance path to their future. 
So we'll start in our next episode by looking at what is clean energy and what isn't. It's a question that so often comes up and there's different viewpoints out there. And we'll talk about the urgency of climate change that is newly appreciated across society. And you might be surprised by someone who's saying maybe we should, in fact, slow down a bit despite that urgency. That's interesting, but you don't need to slow down to find out more about this episode. We've provided links to the groups our youth panelists are involved in on our website. As well, you'll find other articles, organization links, and photos, all at sierraclub.bc.ca slash podcast. And if you didn't hear our last season, there's some really excellent and inspiring stories that are just as relevant today as they were when we released them. So now that this episode's done, go back and take a listen to season one. You'll be glad you did. You can find them all at sierraclub.bc.ca slash podcast and in our Mission Transition feed in your favourite podcast app. While you're there, don't forget to subscribe to Mission Transition to get the latest episode as soon as it's out in a week. And we'd like to hear from you what you think about the views that you're hearing throughout the podcast. You'll find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at at sierraclubbc. We'd like to thank North Growth Foundation for making this podcast series possible. If you'd like to contribute to helping us produce more podcast series like this, please donate at sierraclub.bc.ca. I'd like to thank our three panelists in this episode, Finn Kreischer, Antonia Paquin, and Hannah Gelderman. And I'd also like to thank Kat Zimmer at Sierra Club BC for her invaluable help in making sure this podcast is published every week. And as always, thank you for listening.